Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our question for today was occasioned by the recent defeat of ratification of the United Nations Conventions on the Rights for Persons with Disabilities. That happened a couple of days ago. Utah Senator Mike Lee was one of those leading the opposition. Uh, And our question is, uh, how much are we affected by international treaties and laws? They seem remote to many. But there are many who are saying that uh, international treaties and laws can have real and harmful effects on uh, our lives and our families. Proponents of the United Nations Convention for Rights of Persons with Disabilities are saying that this would solidify rights for persons with disabilities around the world, that it is modeled after the Americans with Disabilities Act, which they say has uh, had great effects in the United States, in improving the lives of persons with disabilities. Uh, Senator McCain, for example, in this debate said that uh, this failure to ratify would harm veterans or disabled veterans. In fact, it pointed to uh, retired Senator Bob Dole, who's a disabled veteran from World War II. Those against say this would have harmful effects on the rights of parents. For one example, Senator Lee, this is what he said, Uh, Those who homeschool their children or send their children to private or religious schools have justifiable doubts that a foreign U.N. body, a committee operating out of Geneva, Switzerland, should decide what's in the best interest of the child at home with his or her parents in Utah or any other state in our great union. We're going to talk about this issue later in the program with Sachin Pavathran from USU's Center for Persons with Disabilities. We'll be uh, bringing in... Uh, Brigham Young University Professor of Law David Moore, who is an expert on uh, the interaction between U.S. and international law. And uh, again later in the program, we'll uh, switch gears and uh, talk about the writer Willa Cather. We'll hear some of her works. We've been hearing about a birthday party that's going to be thrown for Willa Cather here in Logan. First, we bring in Michael Ferris, who's chairman of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Uh, Mr. Ferris, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Uh, so I, I assume that, uh, that, you know, you would say that uh, you were, you'd be in favor of anything that promotes the rights of uh, people with disabilities, but this is the wrong way to go about it, this, this convention. Exactly right. The, uh, um, my own mother has had uh, MS for about 40 years. I've uh, had the privilege of pushing her in her wheelchair around Europe, and uh, there's no doubt that the United States leads the world in this uh, um, issue. And we, you know, should be proud of that fact. But the the way you make uh, gains for anybody in any country is through their domestic law. Uh, the international law uh, implications of this are dangerous. They don't really help people, but they do uh, eliminate uh, sovereignty and self-government, and they have very other. Uh, very difficult implications. I have an LLM in public international law from the University of London. I teach international law and constitutional law uh, in the undergraduate uh, level at at Patrick Henry College, where I'm the chancellor. And, you know, the the arguments made by Senator um, McCain and others, uh, Senator Kerry, that this would help Americans, uh, veterans around the world, is just not true. Just not true. 
Uh, so this this will not help uh, disabled veterans around the world. Why so? Well, I mean, let's. I, I was in Berlin, Germany recently, uh, speaking at a homeschool conference there, and I was uh, in a Burger King. And uh, the, the restrooms for the Burger King are down a complicated flight of stairs. There's no way there was accessibility. There was a young woman in the in the Burger King restaurant in a wheelchair. There was no way that she was going to be able to be facilitated in that facility. The United States ratification of that treaty is not going to build wheelchair ramps in the Burger King in Berlin. It's not going to require the Ber- the manager to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to build ramps now because the United States Senate has ratified this treaty. German restaurants will build wheelchair ramps when Germany passes domestic law requiring them to do so. And that's it. The, the, and, and the United States, you know, do you think that whatever wheelchair ramps they have in, in Germany, they're going to say, you know what, we're not going to let American veterans use the wheelchair ramps because they haven't ratified the treaty. That's not the way it works. And, and the, the idea that this will have extraterritorial effect is just simply uh, incompatible with any understanding of international law. A, treaty, a human rights treaty of this uh, kind binds the nation that ratifies it, that it becomes a party to the treaty. We often talk, talk about them being signatories, but signatory only means you sign it, and that doesn't really sign you up for it. You have to become a party to the treaty. And you become a party, in this case, by ratifying it. And so the, uh, when Germany ratifies it, it takes care of what happens inside of Germany. It has legal effect in Germany, and it, and, and it depends on their domestic laws to what kind of legal effect. The United States is is one of the nations that takes treaties very seriously because of our supremacy clause. It's part of the highest law of the land. Many other nations don't take treaties seriously. Uh, Great Britain, when they ratify a treaty, it's a political promise only, has no legal effect whatsoever domestically. That's not true in the United States. So we, we have to approach treaties much differently than in the rest of the world. So the exact opposite of what they were saying is true on both counts. It has significant domestic effect in the United States. They denied that. It has no effect. Our ratification has no legal effect anywhere else in the world. So the only argument they're left with is, does it have any political effect around the world? And somebody's got to show me one time that any of these rogue nations that they're talking about have ever decided, you know what, the United States ratified this treaty. It's time for us to step up and do the right thing. You know, when has North Korea lived up to its treaty obligations on that basis? When has any nation, Uganda, any of these nations that don't treat people well, um, when have they ever done it the right thing because we ratify a treaty. It just doesn't work that way. And for us to, you know, basically pitch cultural imperialism, the rest of the world's going to get in line now that the United States has ratified this treaty. That's cultural imperialism of a very extreme nature. And I was just shocked to hear those words coming out of Senator Kerry's mouth. If you just joined us, we're talking about the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that was defeated in the Senate. Uh, I believe uh, 38 Republicans voting against, uh, some eight Republicans voting for, and all the Democrats. Uh, so it fails to get the two-thirds uh, vote needed for ratification. Um, Senator Reid says he, he'll uh, try to bring this up uh, later on, but it has been defeated, at least for now. Uh, we're talking about this, and especially how does international treaty, international conventions, international law affect 
us here in us in our private lives in our in our homes. Uh, Michael Ferris is chairman of the uh, Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Uh, he's with us now, and uh, his group was active in advocating against ratification of this treaty. And uh, he's saying that uh, this uh, would have had uh, some harmful effects on parents trying to homeschool their children. In fact, let's go to uh, a, a clip from uh, NPR, from Morning Edition. You uh, may have heard this. Senator Mike Lee from Utah is is articulating uh, some of these ideas. But I and many of my constituents, including those who homeschool their children or send their children to private or religious schools, have justifiable doubts that a foreign UN body, a committee operating out of Geneva, Switzerland, should decide what is in the best interest of the child at home with his or her parents in Utah or in any other state in our great union. Now, Senator, I'll have you respond to that. Senator Kerry, for example, and I'm sure, um, uh, Mr. Ferris, you heard the, this debate. He says uh, all this uh, U.N. convention will do is uh, just uh, enshrine, encourage, and force in other countries what we did 22 years ago when we set the example for the world and passed the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I wonder if you could follow up with Senator Lee there. Uh, how would a convention like this, the U.N. level, harm uh, a parent, say, in Utah? Well, um Senator Lee, who was a Supreme Court law clerk, um, understands that, and he's read the whole treaty and not just the title. Um, the Article 7 of the treaty institutes the best interest of the child standard uh, in all cases concerning children with disabilities. One of the important legal points in that is that the term disability is not defined in the treaty, and they say it's an evolving concept. So we don't even know who's covered by the treaty because of that, and the UN will decide who are the covered persons by being able to redefine the, the term disability. But the way it works is this. In the United States today, if you have uh, a special needs child or a child that's profoundly disabled or anything in, in that zone, then you as the parent get to decide what you think is best for your child. If you want to have them in private school, you can. If you want to have them in public school, you can. If you want to homeschool them, you can. If you want to go to this doctor, you can. If you want to go to that doctor, you can. You make the decisions for the child. The best interest of the child standard is a legal standard that's been used in English-American law for 400 years. And it has a, it's a term of art, and it has the same exact meaning in international law as it does in the United States. And that is the government gets to override the wishes of parents and decide what's in the best interest of the child. The difference between U.S. law and international law is this. In the United States, to invoke the best interest of the child – you have to first prove that the parents have abused, neglected, or abandoned the child. There's some kind of harm done to the child. There's a breach, a proven breach in the parent-child relationship, usually abuse or neglect. And then, and only then, can the government step in and decide what's best for children. Under this treaty, it gives the government the right to decide what's best for the child right out of the gate. Uh, New Zealand's homeschooling law gives us an example of how this works. New Zealand's homeschooling law is very much like the law of pretty much any state in the United States, with one exception. For children with special needs, the law is one sentence long, and it says, and I'm a close paraphrase, the secretary shall decide what is in the best interest of the child and determine whether they should remain in public school or not, period. 
And that's exactly how it work, would work under this treaty if it's implemented in the, in the United States. The government gets to decide what's best. And so the, uh, you know, it's a term of art. It has meaning. And we, Mike Lee and I and many others, Rick Santorum, read the treaty, understand the legal terms, and said, we don't think we should shift the rules to allow government officials to decide what's best for kids when there's no proof of harm. But that's what the U.N. is going toward. What are the provisions for a, a child with disabilities uh, if that child is, is homeschooled? Well, it varies by state. And um, uh, the parents have the ability to, uh, you know, to choose homeschooling in, in virtually every state if you have uh, special needs. There's, um, the, the law varies widely, but, but normally the, the, the procedures are the whatever the the showing of um, progress on the on the, on the part of the parent have to do for any child applies equally to the special needs child. The 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 adjustments are basically you have to show that you're making progress consistent with the, the capacities of the child. That would be the the short of it. And and the parents you know whatever the rules are from state to state they don't vary that much from special needs kids and so-called normal kids. Um, homeschooling is permitted for both kinds of, of uh, situations, and parents have duties and obligations that vary state by state, but it, it works well. It works well, and there's there's a lot. Our organization has, uh, I think it's three uh, full-time uh, special needs counselors that we help uh, parents with uh, who are homeschooling special needs kids. We give them advice. We, we hook them up with local experts in the area. And it's, and it's working very well in the homeschooling world. In fact, it's one of the best ways uh, for using homeschooling is, is that, that individualized one-on-one intention really works well in the special needs concept. It's not by far you know, the majority of homeschooling, but there's a significant population here, and they're having a lot of success with their kids. We're talking about the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. That was uh, defeated in the Senate. Uh, many other nations have ratified it. The uh, U.S. now uh, has decided they will not join this convention, uh, failed the two-thirds vote in the, in the Senate. The question on the table is, uh, do international treaties, conventions, and laws uh, have force in the United States? And uh, how would this affect, uh, say, uh, parents homeschooling their children? Michael Ferris is saying uh, definitely these treaties uh, would have a deleterious effect. And uh, he is Homeschool Legal Defense Association chairman. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Professor David Moore from Brigham Young University, Sachit Pavathran from uh, Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University. We're going to take a brief break. Uh, when we come back, I'll get uh, Mr. Ferris to respond to arguments. Uh, he was already responding to the, this in preview. I'll have him respond again uh, to some arguments you heard in that debate that uh, a treaty such as this convention would not change American law, and cannot be enforced in American courts. We heard those arguments. We'll get uh, Mr. Ferris's uh, arguments, continuation of those against that uh, coming up following the break. I'm Ira Glass of This American Life, and each week on our program, as you may have heard, we choose a theme. We bring you different stories on that theme. But this week we are trying something a little different. The theme is things that happened this week. That's right, things that happened in the seven days leading up to the program, from stories that you might have seen in the news, though we will cover them in a completely different way, to stories so local and personal you will not find them anywhere else this week. 
Friday mornings at 3, again Sunday at 2, afternoon. The Utah Public Radio Holiday Online Auction has a gift for everyone on your list, even you. Gift certificates for restaurants, salons and spas, art, event tickets, car care, ice cream, and more are ready for your bids. There are more than 600 items, and 200 of these have yet to receive bids. In addition, there are no minimum bids. Go to upr.org to begin bidding. The auction continues through Tuesday, December 11th, and all items will be delivered in time for Christmas. It's not too late to donate to the UPR Holiday Auction. Promote your business or begin your own bidding by going to upr.org. The United Nations Convention on the uh, Persons with uh, or uh the rights of persons with disabilities was uh, recently uh, failed in the U.S. Senate. It wasn't ratified. The U.S. does not join it. Um, and the Homeschool Legal Defense Association was very active uh, in this defeat. It's a victory for them. Uh, we're talking with Michael Ferris, who's chairman and founder of the organization. Later on, we're going to be talking with the Brigham Young University Law Professor David Moore and with Sachit Pavathran with the USU Center for Persons with Disabilities. Uh, I want to uh, play uh, another sound clip. This is from Senator Dick Durbin of uh, Arizona. We owe it to Bob Dole, to all of the disabled veterans like him who stand with locked arms begging us to pass this convention. We owe it to the disabled people across America and around the world. So uh, Dick Durbin and others were appealing to to a motion to uh, that the, they're saying that this would help uh, people with disabilities. I want to uh, pivot now to uh, something that uh, Senator Chris Coons from Delaware said. He uh, he gave uh, credit to uh, groups like yours, Mr. Ferris. This is what he said: uh, that uh, groups like yours have succeeded in scaring the parents who homeschool their children all over this country. My own office has gotten dozens of calls and letters demanding I vote against this convention. As a matter of international law and as a matter of U.S. law, this convention does nothing, does nothing to change homeschooling of children in America. Some of the Democrats went on to say, this doesn't change American law, and it can't be enforced by American courts. What are your response? Well, um, with all due respect, the senator has no idea what he's talking about. Um, the, the, The legal principles are this. The supremacy clause of the Constitution says that treaties are part of the highest law of the land. Anything in any state law or state constitution to the contrary is overridden. All education law, or virtually all education law, uh, on the subjects that we're talking about, um, is, is state law. Uh, the IDEA is the one exception to that. And But state laws and state constitutions are overridden by treaties. And so this treaty would have a domestic effect on this country. Now, the, the, the fact that they say the courts can't enforce it they, the courts can enforce it as a result of one of the RUDs, reservations, understandings, and declarations, more or less personalized amendments that the Senate would put on the treaty that would be applicable only in the United States. There was a reservation called non-self-executing – actually, it was a declaration, non-self-executing declaration. And that means you can't go straight to court. Uh, to enforce the treaty directly. You have to go through Congress. Now, 
I have uh, debated the, the the treaty. I was I testified in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on on the treaty. I debated it on the basis that the United States was going to comply with the treaty, that we weren't going to ratify it, and then ignore what we were supposed to do. And so, the duty of a nation to to comply in good faith with the treaty is the number one rule of international law, uh, the Vienna Convention, the law of treaties. But it's been in, around for a lot longer than that. You keep your promises. That's the number one rule. So if we sign up to to do a treaty, the only question is not whether it's enforceable in the United States. It's which agency of government enforces it. And it would be the president through his executive order power that he's expanding on a regular basis and the Congress to do it. The courts, because of this reservation, understanding a declaration, the RUD, that would limit the court's role initially until – it's passed by Congress. And I'll give you an example of how it works. We we ratified a treaty on chemical weapons warfare, and Congress passed implementing legislation. A woman in the Philadelphia area put poison on the doorknob of, of her husband's girlfriend um, in a lover's revenge thing. Well, this woman ends up getting prosecuted for violating the implementing legislation of the Chemical Weapons Treaty. It was supposed to be for chemical weapons warfare, and this woman in a domestic case gets, you know, gets prosecuted, and the case ends up in the Supreme Court of the United States. We Treaties have domestic effect. The Supreme Court of the United States has used the Convention on the Rights of the Child twice to interpret um, the rights of juvenile uh, criminal violators in both death penalty context and the life in prison without parole context. Uh, I filed a brief in the U.S. Supreme Court on the, on the later one, on the life in prison without uh, parole, and simply argued, whatever we're going to do on this subject, we should do it by American law and not pay any attention to this Convention on the Rights of the Child from the U.N. Because, for, among other things, we haven't ratified it. But the Supreme Court ignored that and used the treaty to help interpret the law. And Americans should make the law for America. Um, the senators who feel like we can't protect Americans sufficiently with American law ought to resign their offices, and they ought to give those seats over to people who feel up to the task of passing American laws to protect American people. And the idea that it would have no domestic effect, the people simply cannot read the Constitution and read the Supremacy Clause and say that with a straight face. They don't know what they're talking about. It may not have an effect in the courts, but it has an effect through Congress. Absolutely. Uh, I wonder, we just have a couple of minutes left uh, here with uh, Michael Ferris. I wonder, uh, we've been talking about a couple of the conventions or treaties that failed to ratify. I wonder, are, are there any that have been ratified by the United States and have, in your view, had uh, harmful effects on, on parents? Uh, we've never ratified a treaty of this class. Uh, this is a, a so-called positive rights treaty. Um, human rights treaties are in uh, two different zones, positive rights, negative rights. Positive rights treaties are things the government must do for you. Think of them as international treaties entitlements. Um, we've only ratified treaties that are negative rights, what the government may not do to you. Um, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, we ratified that. But we have not ratified its companion, the International Covenant on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights, which is a positive rights treaty. This treaty, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that, that we helped just defeat, it would have been the first time in, in the United States history that we would have adopted a positive rights treaty, which puts a duty on the government to furnish basically cradle-to-grave services for people in, in this community. 
under UN supervision. We have to pay millions of dollars every on a cycle, it's usually every five years, to go over to the UN, file all these expensive reports, and then sit there while the UN yells at us for not complying completely with our treaty obligations. That money should be spent in the United States on persons with disabilities rather than placating UN bureaucrats. We have the capacity to do whatever we need internally. Our ratification has no external legal effect. Any political effect is de minimis, and the promises that they're making to veterans and others is just a, a cruel hoax. Uh, we're hearing that some of the uh, veterans organizations that supported the treaty are pulling off of it because of the debate. They learned that the treaty was more problematic than they understood. They were sold a bill of goods, and fortunately, there were enough courageous senators like Mike Lee, Orrin Hatch also voted uh, against the treaty. There were enough courageous people that said, you know what, we don't need this treaty to make American policy on, on the subject. We can do it just fine ourselves internally. We've been talking with Michael Ferris, who is chairman of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And uh, we appreciate Mr. Ferris joining us. We're now going to turn to uh, Professor David Moore. He's a professor of law at Brigham Young University. And to ask him some of these uh, same questions, the question we're putting out uh, uh, to you is, what effect does international treaty and national law have on your personal lives living here in Utah? Um, Michael Ferris is saying that uh, had this uh, treaty been ratified by the Senate, it was defeated. This would have had harmful effects on parents trying to homeschool their children. Uh, we bring in uh, Professor David Moore from uh, Brigham Young University. David Moore uh, addresses the interaction, his research does, of the U.S. legal system with international law and relations. He clerked with uh, Justice Samuel Alito. Uh, after uh, graduating, I believe, from BYU, now back as a professor. Uh, professor Moore, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Tom. Let me uh, pose the same questions I was uh, posing to Mr. Ferris. Um, uh, some of the uh, senators arguing this this week on the Senate floor were making uh, these two following arguments. If the uh, convention were to be ratified, nothing would change in American law, A, and B, it could not be enforced by American courts. I wonder what your view is on that. Yeah, I think um, there's uh, there's definitely support for both those arguments. Um, both the president and Senate have to agree on the terms of U.S. ratification of any treaty. And in this instance, there were, as Mr. Ferris indicated, reservations, understandings, and declarations that uh, we proposed um, attaching to our ratifications. A ratification, and and those uh, indicated that U.S. law was in compliance with the treaty, and uh, that therefore there would be be no required changes in U.S. law for the U.S. to uh, adhere to its obligations. Um, so, uh, as an initial matter, there was no indication that the treaty would change provisions of domestic law, um, and as Mr. Ferris mentioned. Uh, the President and the Senate proposed attaching a declaration of non-self-execution, which means that the treaty cannot be enforced by U.S. courts immediately. It doesn't operate of itself. Uh, instead, uh, Congress has to pass a statute to incorporate or implement the treaty obligations as a matter of domestic law. And so there would have been a, a second step in Congress uh, going through the normal statutory process before U.S. law would have been 
changed or uh, before the courts could have enforced the treaty obligations as preemptive federal law. What about the broader argument? Uh, you you hear people uh, being worried about uh, a movement, as they see it, toward sort of a, a tighter world government. Um, and, and, you know, through U.N. treaties, through international courts and the like, some laud this, saying this is a wonderful thing. Others say this harms sovereignty. I wonder where, where you come down on this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are, are obviously arguments on both sides. Uh, on one side, uh, the Constitution certainly contemplates um, some uh, international commitments by the United States. And so the Constitution specifically provides for treaty-making uh, by the President and Senate and renders those treaties uh, supreme domestic law. So uh, the framers certainly anticipated, understood, uh, and intended that the U.S. would make some international commitments, or at least would have the ability to make some international commitments that would also influence domestic law. So on one hand, this is sort of... Um, uh, part of uh, how we've decided to exercise our sovereignty. On the other hand, there's certainly questions about whether modern treaties go too far and do cede too much um, to international institutions. Here, I think the, the greatest concern is that the treaty would have uh, established or does establish a UN committee that would receive reports from states on their compliance with the treaty obligations, and that committee would comment on uh, countries' compliance and make recommendations uh, with regard to what countries can do or ought to be doing. There certainly precedent uh, for these committees being very aggressive in the exercise of their authority uh, and there's been tension between the U.S. and similar committees under other treaty regimes where the committees have purported uh, to provide definitive interpretations of the treaty um, or to declare illegal under international law reservations that the United States has made in ratifying the treaty. Uh, and so I think there are valid concerns that once you establish a committee like this, there aren't the same sort of um, accountability mechanisms uh, or oversight uh, that uh, you might see in other, other contexts. And so a committee can sort of run away with the authority it's given um, and uh, increase both uh, international oversight but also um, expand or attempt to expand the legal obligations that are assumed under the treaty. Coming up, by the way, we'll be talking with Sajit Pavitran from the USU Center for Persons with Disabilities. We're talking about the United Nations Convention on the Rights for Persons with Disabilities. Uh, the U.S. failed to ratify that uh, the vote happened in the Senate this week, and we're talking about international laws and treaties and conventions uh, and the effect that has or does not have on our individual lives. Uh, we're talking now with the BYU uh, professor of law, David Moore. Uh, one final question for you, professor. Uh, this is, uh, you know, sort of tangential, but it but it relates here. It's very interesting. Uh, you apparently uh, published a uh, recent paper, "The President's Unconstitutional Treaty Making," uh, 
um, saying that uh, the uh, when the president signs a treaty subject to later ratification in the Senate, uh, the U.S. Uh, assumes uh, certain um, obligations, and, and you're saying that's unconstitutional. That's correct, yeah. So um, what's happened is international law in recent times has developed a principle that when a nation signs a treaty subject to later ratification after its domestic ratification processes have been completed, uh, international law uh, says that the nation simply by signature assumes the obligation not to take actions that would defeat the object and purpose of the treaty. And there's a lot of disagreement on what this obligation means. uh, with uh, some saying it only prohibits actions that would prevent later compliance with the treaty, others suggesting it goes so far as to impose the treaty obligations on the country pending their ratification. Uh, and uh, my perspective is that the Constitution does not contemplate the president unilaterally assuming treaty obligations, even lesser treaty obligations, prior to receiving the advice and consent of the Senate. Um, There is some authority for the president to enter what are called sole executive agreements, agreements that he enters without the participation of either the whole Congress or the Senate. Uh, But uh, the president's authority to enter these sorts of agreements is much more limited than the constitutional authority to enter treaties uh, through the the process of presidential and uh, senatorial consent. Uh, And so uh, my argument is this sort of newer development in international law and this uh, notion that states assume an obligation merely by signature is inconsistent with our constitutional structure and that the president cannot uh, assume those, those obligations merely by signing a treaty. Well, very interesting. Uh, We've been talking with Brigham Young University Professor of Law, David Moore. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And uh, we now bring on uh, from the Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University, Sachit Pavathran. Uh, Sachit Pavathran, welcome back to Access Utah. Thank you for having me. By the way, congratulations on your uh, recent uh, appointment. Well, thank you. I I forget the the board you're, you're now be serving on. It's the U.S. Access Board. Yes, and we had a report here on on uh, UPR. Uh, the uh, United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, um, I, I assume you're disappointed with the uh, failure of the U- U.S. Senate to ratify this. Well, let me make a, you know, a, a statement first. You know, the last two individuals who spoke, in, you know, obviously the experts in international law, which I have no expertise at all in international law, so what, you know, what they spoke in regards to what treaties do and what impact it has for U.S., you know, that's an area I'm not familiar with. But in in speaking in in regards to people with disabilities and the role that we had and what we wanted, yes, um, individuals with disabilities and the disability groups at large were disappointed that the treaty did not pass. Mm. What uh, what are the needs out there that uh, I, I assume much more progress, in your view, needs to be done to establish rights and to help people with disabilities around the world? Uh, this The proponents of this treaty were saying that uh, what we're doing is we're encouraging, we're enforcing, in a sense, 
other nations to adopt uh, what we did uh, some 20 years ago with the Americans with Disabilities uh, Act? I think one uh, the one angle that the disability community as a whole was trying to push for is to show that we, you know, in the United States, what we have accomplished, and we want to show leadership in all that we have accomplished in the field of disability, and also kind of work with other, have opportunities to work with other countries to accomplish the same areas in the same areas that we have thus far, but. You know, it's it's a hard situation because there's a lot of complexities in this treaty that I'm not really familiar with all the details. I know a lot of things have take, been taken out of proportion where there's been some, uh, you know, fear put into some people about certain aspects of it, which, you know, I'm not in a position to say one way or the other what what is accurate or not since I'm not an expert in all the details of it. But I... Uh, I still feel that it, this would have been a good thing in the world of disability, how it could have impacted um, you know, people around the world in a positive way, and there could have been a lot of positive outcomes out of, that would have come out of it. I'm curious about, uh, you know, you know, setting aside this treaty uh, in specific and just talking in general terms, some might say, well, we've made a lot of progress, and the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act has had a great effect, at least in America. There's progress in other nations. We're doing quite well. I wonder what what you would say to that. What are, what are the horizons? What's the What are some needs out there that, uh, that as you, in your view? Uh, are you talking here in the U.S.? Here in the U.S. or, or internationally in the uh, countries that you're familiar with? But in the U.S., for sure, we've come a long ways. Uh, are we where we want to be? No, we're not. We still have a long ways to go. And in other countries that I've traveled to and worked with, uh, there, there are a lot of countries that are significantly behind where the United States is in, in the area of disability access. Um, we, to be honest with you, uh, with the effort that went into this treaty and all the work that went into pushing this treaty forward, it, it sometimes I wonder if the same effort goes into some of the other issues that we are uh, trying to push in the field of disability here in the U.S., whether that would have passed. There's a lot of well, laws out there, legislations out there that we've been trying to pass for a lot, the last several years, such as the ID, IDEA and uh, the DD Act, we, uh, which impacts here impacts individuals with disabilities here in the United States and has great impact, probably, you know, significantly more than the CRPD would have. I really wish that kind of effort, that that kind of um, effort would go into those kind of issues, which has a domestic impact to it. For those not familiar with those two acts that you're talking about, IDEA and, and the other one, uh, maybe you can explain those briefly. The IDEA uh, deals with... Um, with special education, and the DD Act is for uh, developmental disabilities. Um, the reauthorization of that deals. That's uh, that's an act that the Center for Persons with Disability has strong involvement in. Um, the we as the Workforce in, in, in Investment Act, which deals quite a bit with employment and vocational rehabilitation. Mm. Kind of. In a nutshell, that's kind of what those laws are. But they all have direct impact with people with disabilities here within the United States. 
Just coming down to just a couple of minutes left, and I want to uh, take up, uh, follow up on that word you just used, impact, because that's been the theme of the program, the impact in, in direct uh, people's lives uh, from international treaties, or maybe bring this down to U.S. law. And uh, Mr. Ferris, for example, with the uh, HSLDA, was concerned about the impact of this treaty in the lives of parents who are trying to homeschool their children. Maybe reverse that. Uh, have you talked a bit about the impact that the ADA and other laws have had in the in your life and the lives of people that, around you? The ADA, for example, has had a lot of uh, advances for people with disabilities where we have access to uh, accommodations in a you know in public setting in employment in in areas that in the past that people with disabilities did not there are more people with disabilities out there visible in public in community doing things that a couple of decades ago were not visible at all they, for me for example if i was to seek employment, I do have a right to ask, ask for accommodation, which gives me equal access that my peers would have. So there, there is impact of ha- these kind of laws, uh, such as the ADA on lives for people with disabilities. Um, well, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. Laws, it takes time. The ADA was there was an ADA Amendment Act that was passed a few years ago, which had some improvement, but still there's a long ways to go. And there's a lot of pending laws that needs to be reauthorized to meet the needs of the people with disabilities right now. Sachin Pabathran is a program director for Utah Assistive Technology Program and a disability policy analyst for Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University and uh, has now been appointed by President Obama to a national board. Uh, Such a Pabathron, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll switch gears in the final segment of the program. And uh, we are going to uh, jump on board with the birthday celebrations for uh, celebrated American author Willa Cather. Uh, a couple of USU English professors are throwing her a 139th birthday party in Logan on Friday. One of those, Professor Steve Shively, will join us and uh, we'll talk uh, about uh, what's all the shouting about with Willa Cather, and we'll have him read a couple of favorite passages from Cather's works. That's following the break. Life moves quickly in Utah's fastest-growing county, and as a member of Utah Public Radio's news team, I will keep you up to date on the latest news in Utah County. I'm Stephen Tanner, one of many reporters covering events happening in your neighborhood. For the latest in politics, science, arts, and religion, tune in to Utah Public Radio. Everything that matters to you matters to us. UPR, your favorite public radio station for statewide Utah news. What does it mean to become fully aware? The questions inspire the world's great sages. Some scientists are now peering into the brain to create a science of mindfulness. I'm Jim Fleming. Next time, we'll talk with one who's putting Buddhist monks in brain scanning machines. It's to the best of our knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, 
Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We switch gears from international treaties and laws and their effects on homeschooling and persons with disabilities. We turn to celebrated American novelist Willa Cather, a beloved of many. Uh, Ms. Cather uh, has a 139th birthday party in Logan. That's coming up on Friday. Of course, uh, Willa Cather passed away some time ago. Uh, but as Ryan Cunningham says, her, her uh, spirit probably be present there. And we bring in uh, Steve Shively, uh, USU English professor. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, first of all, tell us uh, what's going to be happening. We'll be at uh, St. John's Episcopal Church Friday evening as part of the CVCA Gallery Walk. We'll start a little bit before most of the Gallery Walk activities start. We'll begin at 5.30, but we'll be going all evening, and folks are welcome to stop in as they wish. Mm. We'll do some some sets of, of readings from Cather's work along with some music. Music was important to her, and it's an important part of this season and the arts. Uh, we'll also have homemade birthday cake from a traditional recipe uh, for folks to enjoy and a little holiday uh, boutique where they can buy their Willa Cather-related gift items for all the book lovers in their lives. So those who aren't already devoted to Catherites, what's all the shouting about? What's, what's so special about Willa Cather? Uh, Willa Cather was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, American writer of the 20th century, sometimes uh, talked about as the great woman American writer, but she would be great no matter her gender. Uh, Partly her range, she's most famous for her books about pioneering, the pioneer homestead period in Nebraska, the pioneer period of the Catholic Church in, in New Mexico in her novel Death Comes for the Archbishop. But she also wrote novels that are set in New York City and in uh, Quebec and in France. Uh, so she's really uh, has a great range. And wherever she's writing about, it's the human spirit that she really captures mm. and great descriptions and a great understanding of people especially people who weren't and aren't acknowledged as great. Uh, she came out of a time when literature was supposed to be about the best and the greatest. It was about uh, Odysseus, great heroes, and about uh, Hamlets and Macbeths, great kings and, and, and princes. And she wrote about pioneer immigrants and ordinary people. Mm. Well, let's hear some Cather. You've, I've asked you to prepare a few passages from your favorite passages from Cather. So set this up. Well, I'll read a, a couple of passages about the notion of miracles because that's what this season is is all about. And we're all pretty good at seeing miracles in the birth of a baby or the transformation of springtime, that sort of thing. But Cather found miracles in everyday ordinary things. And first I'll read a brief excerpt from her novel, Death Comes for the Archbishop, her pioneer priests in New Mexico, are talking about the miracles of the church, which are often very special miracles, the the Virgin Mary appearing at Guadalupe in Mexico, that sort of thing. And one of the priests says, maybe we've got a wrong idea of miracles. And he says, miracles seem to me to rest not so much upon faces or voices or healing power coming suddenly near to us, from afar off, 
but upon our perceptions being made finer, so that for a moment our eyes can see and our ears can hear what is there about us always. So that idea that miracles are in the air, are all about us, is made a little more perceptible in an excerpt from her novel, Lucy Gayhart. And this is set in Pioneer, Nebraska. Lucy, the main character, is helping her sister with the Christmas chores. And she notes, even a simple weed can become a miracle. The day before Christmas opened with a hard snowstorm. When the Gayharts looked out of their windows, the ground was already well covered. The porches and the hedge fence were drifted white. At breakfast, Mr. Gayhart had said, when he went down to make the furnace fire at six o'clock, the snow must have been falling for some time. Lucy spent the morning tramping about in the storm on errands for Pauline. She took boxes of Christmas cakes to all their old friends, carried a pudding in its mold out to the Lutheran pastor's house at the north end of town where there was no sidewalk, and she had to wade through deep snowdrifts. The storm brought back the feeling children have about Christmas, that it is a time of miracles when the angels are near the earth and any wayside weed may suddenly become a rosebush or a Christmas tree. <laughs> Wonderful. So she captures the, the season, the power of weather and nature, but also a people to perceive the good things in the world about mm-hmm. them. I think the other thing you, you say, she, she uh, wrote about ordinary people, made their lives heroic, uh, but also that sense of place. Wherever, wherever she wrote about, you really felt like you were there. Absolutely. She gets the lay of the land, the things that grow on the land, the what erosion has done to the land, uh, all of those things. Uh, the weather, the sky, where it meets the, the, the land. Uh, she's great at all of those things. We're talking about Willa Cather uh, concluding the program here with USU professor of English uh, Steve Shively. There's a birthday party for uh, Ms. Cather in Logan on Friday night. We'll give you details at the end of the program. We just have uh, two or three minutes left. I wonder if you could read us another passage or two. Sure. Let me um, switch gears a little bit. Uh, everybody is, uh, or many people are, are aware of Willa Cather as a writer about um, sentimental, nostalgic moments. But uh, she had fun, too. And here's a passage about dancing. And these are hired girls, again, ordinary girls in a small town in Nebraska uh, on uh, at a dance. And, and the energy and the power in that, I think, are pretty good. There were never girls enough to go around at the dances, but everyone wanted a turn with Tony and Lena. Lena moved without exertion, rather indolently, and her hand often accented the rhythm softly on her partner's shoulder. She smiled if one spoke to her, but seldom answered. The music seemed to put her into a soft, waking dream, and her violet-colored eyes looked sleepily and confidingly at one another from under her long lashes. When she sighed, she exhaled a heavy perfume of sachet powder. To dance home sweet home with Lena was like coming in with the tide. She danced every dance like a waltz, and it was always the same waltz, the waltz of coming home to something, of inevitable, faded return. After a while, one got restless under it, as one does under the heat of a soft, sultry summer day. When you spun out on the floor with Tony, you didn't return to anything. You set out every time upon a new adventure. I liked to shoddish with her, 
She had so much spring and variety and was always putting in new steps and slides. She taught me to dance against and around the hard and fast beat of the music. Hmm. And that's uh, from which novel? That's from her novel, My Antonia, Hmm. probably her most loved novel. She took a a pioneer bohemian immigrant girl who grew to be uh, what most of us would have seen as that funny old lady who talks with an accent down the road. And Willa Cather saw in her uh, someone who had heroism and was a hero. Tell us again what's going to be happening on Friday night. Friday night at St. John's Episcopal Church, we'll have uh, readings and music connected to Cather's works, uh, mostly seasonal, about Christmas and about winter. We'll have homemade birthday cake from a traditional recipe. We'll have a gift shop of Cather-related items. And I didn't mention earlier, but might mention that Willa Cather's great-nephew, Jim Southwick, and his family, who live in Heber City, Utah, will be here as well, and a chance for folks to meet them if they'd like to. I didn't know we had a relative of Cather living in Utah. Uh, Cather is big in Utah. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's certainly true. Um, that is, uh, these events are happening Friday night in Logan. We've been talking with USU professor of English, uh, Steve Shively. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Hope people come out. Uh, tomorrow, of course, we have uh, Access Utah and Science questions with uh, Sherry Quinn. Next week, we hope you'll uh, join us for a very interesting discussion uh, on immigration. Ananda Rose, uh, in 2009, went to the Sonoran Desert border area in Arizona, and uh, talked with uh, all sorts of people on the immigration issue, migrants themselves, uh, Minutemen, Border Patrol agents, ranchers. The result is her new book, uh, Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, uh, Immigration Controversy, and uh, she talks about uh, law and religion and the motivations of uh, people. Her wish was to get beyond stereotypes and move us forward in the immigration discussion. That'll be coming next week on Access Utah. And for today, for uh, producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening. The bidding has started at Utah Public Radio's holiday online auction where you will find art, electronics, restaurant, and travel packages. These items are located statewide, and you can still add your item to the auction until the auction ends Tuesday, December 11th. Check it out at upr.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan.